We're going to read from the New Testament, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and then the sermon text in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. This is a little bit different than our normal custom to read Old Testament and New, but I, I do want you to have Acts chapter 6 in mind uh, as we consider our sermon text for today. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that is the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Our sermon text today is 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. Here we read, Deacons likewise must be dignified... Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Let us not forget that Paul's purpose in writing to Timothy was to ensure that the church be properly ordered. I've repeated myself on this in this regard over and over again in this sermon series. And I think it is important to to keep this in mind. His concern is that the church be properly ordered. The false teachers that had infiltrated the church in Ephesus were promoting speculations that led to disorder rather than the stewardship or good order from God that is by faith. That is 1 Timothy 1.4. Paul wrote to Timothy so that he may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is the household of God, and Timothy was a steward. He was a household manager, if you will. And Timothy was to see to it that overseers were appointed to serve in God's house. They, we learned last week, are to be morally upright and gifted for the work. And one thing that overseers would need to do was to care for God's church. And how would they prove that they were capable of doing this? The answer is by managing their own households. Concerning overseers, 1 Timothy 3.5 says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so this entire letter has order in the household of God 
as its major theme. Brothers and sisters, our God is a God of order. Our God is a God of order. That He is a God of order is displayed most wonderfully in the natural world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The earth was at first without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And in six days' time, God formed and fashioned the earth by the power of His word to make it a place suitable for human habitation. And so in creation, God transformed the earthly realm, bringing order out of disorder so that life might flourish. Order in the natural world makes human life possible. And that order is beautiful to behold. I wonder if you've ever spent time just looking at the order in the natural world and seeing God's beauty in it. His order is also displayed within the family. In the beginning, God instituted marriage and commanded that children be brought into the world and raised through the union of a husband and wife. Order within the home is also beautiful to behold. And that God is a God of order is also displayed within society and the authority structures that God has instituted. And how good and pleasant it is for citizens to live in a well-ordered and just society. Order is beautiful, isn't it? And our God is a God of order. We should not be surprised then to find instructions concerning the proper ordering of Christ's church. The Old Testament is filled with instructions concerning the ordering of the nation of Israel and the proper worship of God under the Old Covenant. And the New Testament does provide us with instructions concerning the proper worship of God and the ordering of the Israel of God, that is to say, the church of God, under the New Covenant. Our God is a God of order, and His household is to be kept orderly. His house is to be filled with truth and not falsehood. His house is to be kept holy. His house is to be a house of prayer. His house is to be well managed and cared for. We've learned all about this in 1 Timothy so far. In the previous passage, we learned that in God's house, men are to be appointed to hold the office of overseer. These men are to be morally upright and gifted for the work. And in the passage that is before us today, we learn that there is a second office within Christ's church, the office of deacon. So when a church is properly ordered, it consists of members, and some of those members will be called to hold the office of overseer or deacon. What does it mean to hold an office within Christ's church? Well, it means to be appointed to a position of authority, which involves service. That overseers and deacons are offices within Christ's church is made clear by the fact that qualifications are listed. They are listed here in 1 Timothy. Qualifications for overseers are also listed in Paul's letter to Titus. Were these merely non-authoritative gifts that Paul was referring to, then no qualification would need to be met. Paul deals with that elsewhere in his writings. He talks about the fact that all believers have spiritual gifts that are given to them, and those gifts are to be ministered within the church for the edification of the body of Christ. But there are no qualifications that are listed for the exercise of those spiritual gifts. Christians are simply to use them. They are to use them freely. Some, for example, have the gift of faith. Others, the gift of mercy. Still others, the gift of hospitality. You, brothers and sisters, have spiritual gifts and you are to use them freely for the edification of the body of Christ. But we see here 
that overseers and deacons are offices within Christ's church because there are a list of qualifications that are given. These offices um, have authority. Um, these men who are called to the office of overseer and deacon are called by God and the congregation to lead and to serve within the church in a formal capacity, thus the qualifications. So within every local church, there are members. These have believed upon Christ. These have made a credible profession of faith. They have said Jesus is Lord through the waters of baptism. And these have willingly joined themselves to a particular local church where they walk with others who are also joined to Christ by faith. In every local church, there are members and some of these members will be called to serve Christ's church as overseers or deacons. This basic makeup of the church is reflected in Paul's greeting to the church in Philippi. In Philippians 1.1, we read these words, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And so in Paul's mind, the church was properly ordered, fully formed, when it consisted of, of members, those who have faith in Christ and who have professed that faith through the waters of baptism, and also overseers or elders and deacons. You know what overseers are. This one office goes by different names. Overseers are bishops, elders, pastors, and shepherds. Each name that is listed for us in the New Testament simply highlights a different aspect of the work of this office. In brief, overseers provide oversight and leadership to the church. They shepherd the congregation. They lead in teaching and prayer and pastoral care and in matters of discipline. And again, the qualifications for elders were considered last week. But what are deacons? What are deacons? You will notice that this text that is before us today does not explicitly tell us what deacons are called to do. To gain a better understanding of what deacons are called to do, we will need to look elsewhere, and we will in due time. But certain things may be gleaned from this text. Though the job description of, of deacons are not laid out here before us, only qualifications are laid out, we may, we may discern what it is that deacons are to do from this text. First of all, we can see from this passage that deacons do have authority within Christ's church. Deacons have authority within Christ's church. That deacons have authority is made clear by the list of qualifications that we find in this passage. Again, were Paul simply exhorting men to serve within Christ's church, then no qualifications would be listed. But Paul is not merely encouraging Christians to serve within Christ's church. Instead, he is concerned that the office of deacon be filled by men who are qualified and gifted, for this office does involve the exercise of authority. The word likewise at the beginning of verse 8 is very significant. It links the qualifications for overseers and the qualifications for deacons together. Likewise, Paul says, both overseers and deacons are offices in Christ's church. Both overseers and deacons have authority in Christ's church, and so both must meet certain qualifications. And if we compare the qualifications for deacons to that of overseers, we will find that they are similar. They are not the same. They do differ in some significant respects, but they are similar. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. To be dignified is to be honorable and deserving of respect. 
The phrase not double-tongued means that the man must not be a hypocrite, or we might say he must not be two-faced. Not addicted to much wine means that he must not be a drunkard, and not greedy for dishonest gain means that he must not be a lover of money. I, I'm progressing very rapidly through these qualifications because you've already been taught about them in the qualifications that were listed for overseers. They are not stated in the exact same way, but this should all sound familiar to you. In verse 9 we read, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I think this is probably a good time to note one of the obvious differences between the qualifications for overseers and deacons. You will notice that a deacon is not to be able to teach. Overseers are called to teach. Deacons are not. But this does not mean that a deacon need not hold to sound doctrine. When Paul says that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith, He means that they must understand the faith which God has revealed in Christ Jesus, and they must believe it. We typically use the word faith to refer to personal belief or trust in Christ, and it is that. But sometimes the word faith is used to refer to a body of doctrine or a set of beliefs. And you will notice that deacons are said to need to hold to the faith, the presence of the definite article helps us to see that Paul is not referring to personal faith or trust, but to sound Christian doctrine. Certainly, a deacon must have personal faith. That is an obvious requirement to hold the office of deacon. But here, Paul is emphasizing something else. Deacons need to hold to the faith. That is, they must be able to understand and and hold to Christian doctrine, sound Christian doctrine. That is what he means by the faith. And he calls it the mystery of the faith because the truth concerning exactly who and what the Christ would be was for ages largely hidden, but had been revealed when Christ was born into the world as he lived, died, and rose again, ascending to the Father's right hand. This is how Paul uses the word mystery. A mystery in Paul is a truth once concealed, but now revealed. And the point is this. Though deacons are not called to teach within the church, this does not mean that they, must, that, that they may have poor doctrine. They must hold to the mystery of the faith. And I hope you can understand why this is the case. Perhaps you have noticed that doctrine affects everything. It, in fact, it affects every aspect of our lives. The way that you live is based upon what you truly believe, and deacons will serve within Christ's church, constantly being influenced and motivated by and moved by what they believe to be true in their minds and hearts. So if a deacon is going to serve faithfully within Christ's church, though he is not called to teach, he must still hold to the mystery of the faith. He himself must have sound doctrine. You should know that for a man to hold the office of overseer at Emmaus, he must fully subscribe to the Second London Confession of Faith. That confession does accurately summarize the faith in our opinion. And so requiring full subscription to that confession does help to ensure that our overseers, our elders, our pastors, hold to sound doctrine. Please remember, brothers and sisters, that every heretic does claim to believe the Bible. We must press further and ask, well, what do you believe the Bible to teach on this major doctrine or that? And having a confession of faith is a great help in maintaining doctrinal purity. Every 
overseer or elder here at Emmaus must fully subscribe to the Second London Confession of Faith, which is our confession of faith. We believe it to be a wonderful summary of the core teaching of Holy Scripture. And not only must overseers fully subscribe to the Second London Confession, but deacons must also fully subscribe. Yes, they are not called to teach within Christ's church, but nevertheless, they do have authority within Christ's church. And they are to minister faithfully. And if they are to minister faithfully, they must, they must have sound doctrine. Why must deacons fully subscribe if they are not in charge of the teaching ministry of the church? The answer is because Paul lists holding the mystery of a faith, the, the mystery of the faith, as a qualification for them. And this is a qualification because deacons, again, do have authority within Christ's church. The authority, though it is not authority to teach, it is real authority, and so they must hold to sound doctrine because, again, doctrine affects everything. In fact, Paul says that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This means that they must be living according to the ethical demands of the Scriptures. They, like overseers, are to be morally upright so that their own conscience does not condemn them. They must have a conscience that is clear. Verse 10, deacons are to be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. We might ask, who are they to be tested by? Who are they to be tested by? Clearly, they are to be tested by the overseers who have that general responsibility to oversee and to lead uh, the Christian congregation, God's church. But the implication is that they are to be tested by the whole congregation. They are to be found blameless, meaning morally upright, by the church. And it is the church that is to appoint them to the office. At Emmaus, we have a congregational form of church government. You should know this. And this does not mean that the members are to be involved in every decision that is made. Uh, no, the overseers do have the responsibility and authority to lead within the church, and that freedom is rather broad. But the congregation is to be involved in three things. This is biblical, and it is also stated within our Constitution. One, the members are to be involved in the reception of new members. Two, the members are to be involved in the final stages of church discipline, particularly excommunication. Uh, remember what Matthew 18 says so clearly, uh, that if someone is in sin, you're to go to him alone, to take another with them, uh, with, with you, to, to confront the brother who's in sin. And if there is no repentance, it's to be told to the church, not just to the elders or the overseers, but, but to the whole church. And so members are to be involved in the final stages of church discipline, particularly excommunication. And three, the members are to be involved in the appointment or removal, God forbid, of church officers. This is the pattern that is presented to us within the pages of the New Testament. The congregation's involvement in these things is demanded by the Scriptures. Both overseers and deacons are to prove themselves blameless. Blameless does not mean perfect, for no one could hold the office if that were the requirement. But they are to be found living morally upright lives. They are to be above reproach. They are to live lives marked by humility and repentance where sin is present. This is the qualification for both overseers and deacons. And who are they to prove this to except the church that they will be called to serve? And it will be the church with the overseers at the lead who sets officers apart for the work 
through the laying on of hands. In verse 11, we read, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. This verse here, verse 11, has been a source of debate. The Greek word translated as wives can either mean women in general or wives in particular. And so the question is, does Paul mean women who hold the office of deacon, or is he here referring to the wives of the deacons? It's a very important question that we must deal with here. You can see that uh, the position the ESV takes is that Paul is here referring to the wives of the deacons. The ESV, along with the King James Version, the New King James Version, the NET and the NIV, they all translate this Greek word as wives. But perhaps you're reading from the New American Standard Bible and you will see uh, the phrase is, women must likewise be dignified. Another text that contributes to the debate about women holding the office of deacon is Romans 16.1, where Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, or Phoebe, I'm never sure how to pronounce that name, to be honest with you, a servant of the church of Centrae, that is Romans 16.1. And the Greek word translated as, translated as servant there in that passage is the same word that appears here in our text translated as deacon. So again, some wonder, was this woman a deacon or was she a servant? Deacon means servant. Whether or not that word, that same Greek word, is referring to a servant or someone who holds the office of deacon is really determined by the context of the passage. And so some have wondered whether or not this woman mentioned in Romans 16.1, is being called a servant by the apostle or a deacon. And so there is some debate, even within Reformed churches, as to whether or not women may hold the office of deacon. It is our view that Phoebe was a servant and not a deacon, and that when Paul refers to women in 1 Timothy 3.11, he is referring to the wives of deacons and not to women who are themselves deacons. And I do believe that this view is supported by a study of the practice of the early church. The practice of the early church is not authoritative for us, brothers and sisters. Only the Word of God is. But nevertheless, we can learn a great deal from the practice of the early church. It can help us to know how the early church uh, interpreted the scriptures and even those who were living so close in proximity to the age of the apostles, what they understood the apostles themselves to be saying. And so I do believe that this view can be supported from a study of the practice of the early church. But the answer to the question, does Paul mean women in general or the wives of the deacons in particular, is answered clearly by what Paul has already said in 1 Timothy 2.12. Namely, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. This Paul has already clearly stated. And if the office of deacon is an authoritative office, which it certainly is, thus the qualifications, then Paul has already answered the question, may women hold the office of deacon in 1 Timothy 2.12. So why then does Paul place requirements on the wives of deacons but you will notice he does not place requirements on the wives of overseers. That is interesting, isn't it? 
he actually has a special set of requirements for the wives of, of deacons, but he doesn't for the wives of overseers. Why must the wives of deacons likewise be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things? Have you ever wondered about that? I'll tell you why. I think it has to do with the nature of the deacon's work. We will soon explore this further, but for now let me say that deacons are called to care for the physical needs of the congregation. This will require the deacon to come alongside those who are ill and suffering. This he will need to do not only for the men within the congregation, but also for the women in the congregation. And so it is not at all difficult to imagine a situation where it would be inappropriate for a male deacon to meet the need, particularly of female members, himself. Instead, who do you think will help him meet the need? The wives will. His wife will accompany him in the work and be a great help to him as he fulfills his, his, his duties as a deacon. Or perhaps another woman in the congregation who has volunteered to assist the deacon in his work will accompany him. And these women, the wives of the deacons and perhaps others who assist the deacons in their work, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Brothers and sisters, the work of the deacon is, is vital work. It is important work. And faithful men must do the work because deacons will have to engage in people's lives in a very intimate way. They will have to come alongside them in very difficult circumstances. They must be trustworthy. And so too should the women who accompany the deacon in the work, be it their wives or some others. You will notice that this is not said of overseers concerning their wives, neither here nor in Titus 1 in that parallel passage concerning the requirements to hold the office of overseer. And I think this is why. An overseer may discharge his duty without running into this problem that I have just mentioned. An overseer may preach, he may pray, he may provide oversight of the church and not require the assistance of his wife or other women in the congregation to meet the physical needs of women in the congregation who are suffering as deacons will. I think that is why Paul mentions here this qualification for the wives of deacons. And so I wonder, brothers and sisters, here is a good time for a bit of application. Are you praying for the officers of a man's? Are you praying for them regularly? And I think you know what my next question will be. Are you praying for their wives also? Are you praying for their spouses? Though an elder may discharge his duties without the formal assistance of his wife, you know that a good and godly wife is a tremendous blessing and support him in his work. And so you are to pray for your elders, and you are to pray also for their spouses, and you are to pray for your deacons as they discharge their very important ministry but be sure to pray for their wives also. They are mentioned here in this text because they play a vital role in the support of the diaconate. I have witnessed it, brothers and sisters. I have witnessed it firsthand. I know how much these women who are involved in the support of their deacon husbands and in the service of Christ's church do. And so we must be sure to pray for them often. 
In verse 12, Paul returns to the, de- the deacon himself, saying, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. You will notice this also supports the interpretation that men are to hold the office of deacon. But Paul's point is that deacons, like overseers, are to be faithful to their wives. And then we read, Managing their children in their own households well. This is similar to the qualification for overseers, but it is not quite the same. Both overseers and deacons have authority over the church of God. Both must manage their church in their own way. And so both must first demonstrate the ability to manage their households. Overseers are to keep their children submissive with all dignity. And I do believe that this additional phrase corresponds to the fact that overseers need to demonstrate they have a natural ability to lead. He must be able to lead the congregation to love and good works. And he should demonstrate that he is able to do this first at home. But deacons must do do a similar thing. They are going to have to manage the church in their own way. They have real authority within the church. They're going to have to manage funds. They're going to have to deal with complex situations. They're going to have to use wisdom to discern the best way to meet a particular need within the congregation. Perhaps Perhaps you don't see it, brothers and sisters, but I do. I know that some of the problems that face overseers and deacons can be Very difficult and complex. And so, overseers and deacons must show that they have the ability to manage their own households before they are given management responsibilities within the church of God, the household of God. And then in verse 13, we find this word of encouragement for deacons. In fact, uh, the word of encouragement for deacons found here in verse 13, it corresponds to the word of encouragement that was delivered to overseers at the beginning of verse 1. So you will notice this entire section concerning qualifications for overseers and deacons has encouragement for overseers and encouragement for deacons functioning as an intro and a conclusion, bookends to this passage, if you will. In verse 1, we read, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So it's almost as if there is an encouragement to the congregation, to those in the congregation to desire uh, this ministry. And then in verse 13, we read, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so, again, a word of encouragement is delivered to them. And I think to the whole congregation, saying perhaps you should desire to hold the office of deacon. There are spiritual blessings that accompany faithful service as a deacon. Serve as a deacon is an honor within Christ's church. The faith of deacons is strengthened as they have a front row seat to the ministry of the church being discharged. They have a hand in it. And the Lord does bless them for their service. That is the point that Paul is here making. Up to this point in the sermon, I have only demonstrated to you that deacons have authority within Christ's church. And we have overviewed briefly the qualifications to hold this office of authority, but what kind of authority do they have? What is it that they are, what is it that they are to do? And let me begin to answer that question by saying that the authority of overseers and deacons is not the same authority. It is not the same. And that is made clear in this passage in at least three different ways. One, I will draw your attention to the word likewise at the beginning of verse 8. The word likewise indicates that overseers and deacons are similar, but they are not the same. Were they the same, Paul would have dealt with them together. Likewise indicated that overseers and deacons are similar, but not the same. How are they similar? Well, both are authoritative offices within Christ's church. And how are they different? We will consider that in just a moment. Two, they are similar but different in that 
they have a different set of qualifications. Uh, that indicates that the authority of overseers and deacons is not the same. And three, the titles themselves indicate differing levels of authority. Deacon means servant, as has already been said. Overseer means leader in general. Notice that both overseers and deacons are called servants, but overseers are called to lead. As it has already been said, overseers are called to teach. And so the authority that they possess is not the same. They both have authority in Christ's church. Both are offices which require qualifications to be met, but overseers, that is to say, pastors and elders, are called to maintain the general oversight and leadership of the church. So then what are deacons called to do? And, in fact, we might at the same time ask the question, what are overseers called to do? Given that these offices are designed to complement one another, as we will see. To answer the question, what are deacons and overseers called to do, we must look elsewhere. What they are called to do is implied in this text, and we have drawn out some of those implications. But here Paul sets down qualifications for these offices and not a job description. He assumed that Timothy, along with the rest of the church in Ephesus, knew what these offices were and what they entailed by the time he wrote this letter to Timothy. Evidently, the office of overseer and deacon had already been well established, so well established within the early church that he listed these qualifications for them, assuming that they knew what these offices were all about. In brief, when the New Testament evidence is considered, we see that overseers are to lead the church, They are to devote themselves to the preaching and teaching of Scripture, to the defense of the sound doctrine, and to the maintenance of the worship of God, to prayer, and to the care of souls. And the deacons are to devote themselves to caring for the physical needs of God's people so as to free the overseers to do their work. This is how the two offices complement one another. That Acts 6 passage that was read at the beginning of the sermon is, is very significant. It is likely that that passage describes to us the original formation of the office of deacon. Now, it must be admitted that the seven men who were chosen to serve are not called deacons in in that passage. Diakonos is the Greek word. But they were set apart to do the work of service, diakoneo in the Greek. And so you can hear how similar these words are. Diakonos is the noun translated as deacon in 1 Timothy 3, and diakoneo is the verb which describes the work that these seven were appointed to in Acts chapter 6. And so they were not called deacons in that passage, but we see that they are doing the work of the diaconate. These were to oversee the service of tables. They were to oversee the service of tables. These seven that were listed there in Acts 6 were the original deacons, I believe, brothers and sisters. And this is significant. Notice a few things about this passage in Acts 6, which describes the establishment of the diaconate. One, there was work to be done that had to do with meeting physical needs. Widows needed to be cared for. In our day and age, the government attempts to meet the physical needs of its citizens, but in the days of the early church, this responsibility fell quite naturally to the community. The church needed to see to it that the physical needs of Christian widows were being met. And by the way, 
The same is still true today as the government will struggle to care for its citizens in the way that only friends, family, neighbors, and fellow church members can. And so just because we live within a society with a government uh, that tries to do just about everything, that does not mean that we should ignore the needs of uh, members of of the church, uh, widows and others, but rather we should seek to be sure that they are well cared for. In fact, um, I am not saying that Christians should reject government aid when it is needed. After all, you and your fellow church members have already paid taxes, haven't you? I hope that is true. And so you might as well benefit from them when there is a legitimate need. But what I am saying here is that the church should not leave caring for the needy amongst them to the government. This is the church's job. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and to especially to those who are of the household of faith, says Galatians 6.10. So there was work to be done there in that passage, Acts chapter 6. Widows needed to be cared for. Two, notice that a failure to meet the physical needs of church members with equity was leading to division within Christ's church. The Hellenists, that is to say the Greek widows, were being neglected while Hebrew widows were being well taken care of. Favoritism was being shown to them. And so, yes, even the Christians in the early church were struggling with a form of racism. Favoritism was being shown to one group of people over another based upon their ethnicity. And this inequality in the benevolence ministry of the church was dividing the congregation. Could you imagine the turmoil that was resulting from this favoritism that was being shown? Three, the apostles were unable to meet the need while at the same time devoting themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. No, the apostles were not saying we are above serving tables. Too good for it, you see. It's not their point. In fact, Christ himself taught his disciples to, 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 to wash feet and to have that servant-hearted disposition. Instead, uh, the apostles were concerned that prayer and the preaching of the word would be neglected if they were to give themselves to this task. They knew that they needed to maintain a laser-like focus upon the ministry of the word of God and prayer. And so they were unable to meet the need while at the same time devoting themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. For meeting these physical needs was so vital to the church, to the life of the church, that neglecting them was simply not an option. And so the office of deacon was established. I, I want for you to notice something here. That as the early church began to form... And as the apostles looked out upon the church, they noticed that physical needs were important. Brothers and sisters, the church is not all about spiritual needs. It also is to be concerned with meeting physical needs as well. After all, we are made up of body and soul, aren't we? And God does care for us as whole persons. On the last day when Christ returns, bodies will be raised from the grave and reunited to the soul where we as whole persons will live in the new heavens and new earth from all e- for all eternity. Christ did not just save us in a spiritual sense. He did not just save our souls, but our bodies as well. And even in that Lord's Prayer, which Christ taught His disciples to pray, we have that little remark in there, give us this day our daily bread. And so the church is to be very much concerned, not only for spiritual matters, but also for physical. Five, it appears that this was an office from the beginning even there in Acts chapter 6, because there were certain qualifications that had to be met. The apostles took the lead, and they instructed the congregation, saying, Pick out from among you seven men of 
good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So I think you can see that the qualifications that Paul lists for deacons in 1 Timothy 3 are nothing more than an elaboration on what the apostle said in Acts chapter 6. Do you see the connection? These were not just servants in Acts chapter 6. These were deacons. They were being appointed to a formal office that had authority. Therefore, the congregation was said, pick out men to, to serve in this capacity, this official capacity, but they must meet these qualifications. Now, Paul in 1 Timothy 3 is simply restating that and even elaborating upon the qualifications in a more detailed fashion. These servants were to be men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom in Acts 6. Six, the number of men choose, chosen was determined by the need of the congregation. Seven were chosen, I believe, because seven could do the job. And I think this should be true today. How many deacons should a church have? Well, it depends upon the size of the congregation and the needs that exist within the church. Seven, it was the entire congregation that chose the seven men. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, and this word brothers here in the Greek may refer to sisters also. Therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So do you see that the apostles are here leading? They're directing the congregation, and when it comes time to appoint these men, they will lay their hands on them. But it is the church, the, the assembly, the congregation that chooses its deacons. Eight, the church was instructed to choose seven men, even there in Acts chapter 6. Concerning the question, may women hold the office of deacon? Well, Acts chapter 6 does also inform us concerning this. They were to choose seven men, and indeed seven men were chosen. Nine, the church was to present the men back to the apostles for approval, and the apostles were to lay their hands on the men to appoint them to the office. And the same is true today. The church is to choose its officers. The overseers are to lead in this. If they approve, they are to lay their hands on the men chosen by the congregation to ordain them. Ten, these original deacons were not waiters or busboys. Instead, they oversaw the daily distribution to be sure that all of the widows were equally cared for, no matter their ethnicity. I say that they were not waiters or busboys. In order to make this point, I think in some churches, uh, the congregation assumes that it is the deacons who must themselves do all the manual labor. They are the ones who must paint the walls. They are the ones who must deliver the food. They are the ones that must visit the sick and the needy, and though they will indeed be called to get their own hands dirty, no doubt, they must have the heart of the servant. Really what they are to do is to oversee the congregation to be sure that needs are being met, not just by themselves, but, but by the members too. They are to organize the benevolence ministry of the church to be sure that everyone within the congregation is properly cared for. Brothers and sisters, the diaconate is vital to a flourishing congregation. I want you to know that for, for certain. The diaconate is vital to a flourishing congregation. It is vital that Christians be cared for body and soul. Body and soul. This is one of the ways that we can love one another, is being concerned for physical needs that are around us. Though we have made a distinction between body and soul, the physical and the spiritual 
we should not forget that the two affect each other, for we are complex persons. So ultimately, yes, we are to make disciples of all nations. We're to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. Yes, we are really about uh, the soul. We, we want to see men and women sanctified. But I think you could understand how suffering according to the flesh can indeed impact a person spiritually as well, especially if it is within the power of the congregation to alleviate that suffering so- somehow. To not have it alleviated, when it is in the power of the congregation to alleviate it, will be a great discouragement to a member. But to have it alleviated, to have others come around you in, in a moment of suffering and to, and to bring that encouragement or to alleviate the physical suffering will be a great encouragement to that individual spiritually. We may distinguish between body and soul, but we must remember that we are whole persons. We are complex persons. And so physical suffering does indeed affect us spiritually And brothers and sisters, if we are able to in any way alleviate physical suffering of one of our members, we ought to do so. We ought to care for them as whole persons. The diaconate is vital also to the peace of the congregation. That's one thing I want you to notice. In that Acts 6 passage, it was not only that widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, their physical needs not being met, but that was causing great division within the church. And that is what injustice does. Where there is injustice, communities are divided. That is true of the family. That is true of our society. That is true of the church as well. And so really deacons are to be concerned uh, not only with meeting physical needs, but with preserving unity within the church of Christ by being sure that everyone is fairly cared for. The diaconate is vital also to the eldership. Where there is a flourishing diaconate, you will find that the overseers or elders are free to do what God has called them to do. Namely, they are to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to the prayer, to the general oversight of the church, to the caring of souls. The diaconate is even vital to the evangelistic ministry of the church. What do I mean by this? Remember the words of Christ. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here is one of the ways that we love one another, by caring for one another, even as it pertains to physical needs. And so pray for your deacons, brothers and sisters. Pray for your deacons. Pray for their wives. Be ready to serve also under their guidance as they are faithful to discharge their duties. Be ready to serve under their guidance. If you see a need that is bigger than you can meet alone in the congregation, what should you do about that? Tell a deacon. Go to one of your deacons and to say, I see this need, and if I could meet it myself, or if our small group could meet it, or if our group could meet it, we would, but it seems to be bigger than that. And so what do you say? What should we do? How can we cooperate together to to meet the need? And if you are in need yourself, you must make it known. Brothers and sisters, do not assume that we have the ability to read your mind or to see into your private life and notice that there is a need there, but make it known. Brothers and sisters, let us see to it that the church is well-ordered. Our God is a God of order, and we do trust that things flourish when they operate according to God's design. May the Lord bless us and be glorified in this place. In Christ's name, let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, 
we do thank you for the church. We thank you for our personal salvation, of course. We rejoice in the fact that we are justified, that we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, that we have been adopted as your children individually. But what a tremendous blessing it is to sojourn in this world, not alone, but together. We know that the church is your bride. It is your household. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Lord, uh, may we we always uh, stand grateful before you for the church. And Father, we do pray that you would help us to be faithful as the church, that we, we would order this congregation according to your word. So help us, Lord, to do that. Every member, help them to do this and to maintain the proper order of the church. Father, I do pray that you would bless the overseers of Emmaus, that they would flourish in their work, that they would do their work as servants, that you would energize them and sustain them, Lord. Help us to lead according to your word and with wisdom. And we do pray also for our deacons and their wives, that they would be sustained in their work, that they would be energized to to meet the need, that they would have authority, but with a servant's heart. Father, give them wisdom to do their work well. Father, we do pray that the end result would be a flourishing congregation. Father, we pray that the members of this church would be built up in Christ and eager to serve you faithfully all the days of their life. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray, and all of God's people say,